I wasn't delivered by a stork. I was pulled out of a hat. That's what my guest Julie Eng says about how she arrived in the world. Julie grew up learning and performing magic side by side with her father, who is a well-known magician on the West Coast. And she now is an in-demand performer and the executive director of Magicana, a Toronto-based organization dedicated to the exploration and advancement of magic. Welcome. Thank you. And did I say Magicana correctly? Is yes, that... you did. Yay, it's all working out. <laughs> it is. So I, I mentioned your father. You are a second generation illusionist. That has to be kind of rare. It's not unheard of, but it has to be a little bit rare. I think so. I don't seek out others in that for for whatever reason. I I feel like I'm I've been involved with it for so long. It it's it is like my DNA. It's just how I grew up and I've been thinking a lot about it. And my father just involved me right from the get-go. He literally, there's a picture of me coming out of a hat. You know, it's, it's really fun. <laughs> well, there is a show playing in Toronto. This show is heard across the country, so I don't want people outside of, of the bubble that we're sitting in right now to feel alienated. But there is a show playing at the Art Gallery of Ontario uh, that you helped curate, and there is a... a, a film of yes. you, yes. a little documentary. And there are pictures of you, and you look to be three, four, five years was, old yes. in those pictures yes. on stage with yes. your dad. Yes, so we grew, my sister and I are close in age and we grew up on stage. Truly, the moment we could walk, we were part of this show. And, you know, at first it was, my dad used to tease us, you know, you know, it's an instant applause getter, you know, you produce the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he teased in that manner, right. you know, he really was proud of us and I felt um, like we were part of the show. It's dynamic, you know, to see a family of magicians mm -hmm. up there and I think that's one of the things that he really took pride in. I don't think he really noticed that, you know, we we're little kids and we we're little girls. Like, he didn't sort of measure us like this. Right. We were his family, so. And when did you start not just being a prop, something that would <laughs> pull out of a hat and yeah. actually start doing tricks? Well, I always was part of it. You know, I was taught at an early age, keep it kind of, you know, what you do is sort of, you know, a secret from the audience. Right, and, right. and that's how I learned. Yeah. So I was working behind the scenes quite early. But, you know, it's part of my daycare, right? Like this yeah. is my parents had to <laughs> deal with us somehow. Yeah. And so I would learn how to handle myself backstage and handle the props. And I learned. I learned, I guess, in this mentorship assistant way. But by the time I was about 11 or 12, my, my father felt a lot of confidence in popping me in front of right. an audience. And that's when all magicians do. You, you start very you know, safely with the birthday parties. Right. But right. That, that could be a really scary endeavor, too. <laughs> my <laughs> children are powerful audiences. They are, and they look at magic differently than adults yes. do. They're not as easy to fool because... Uh, for an adult audience, if you go, they'll, they'll look towards <laughs> the sound of the clap, yes. whereas kids don't necessarily get fooled by misdirection in the same way. They, they Their filters are different, you know, and they are innocent, mm -hmm. and they don't find the usual trappings of, like, yeah, look over here. Yeah, yeah. And I have a five-year-old nephew now, and it's hilarious because I have to work with this in mind. And he is. He's he's all over me with, oh, yeah, show me how to do this. You know, can you vanish that and do some magic, Auntie? And I love that because yeah. I I see that he wants to believe in it, too. So it's the, – the, this audience is great because they're very um, – 
unfiltered in the sense of how much joy they feel yeah, yeah. and how much disappointment they feel. <laughs> <laughs> They're very honest. <laughs> when I was a kid, I, I, I did magic for years when, when I was growing up and I was going through some stuff. My brother sent me a box a little while ago <laughs> and, and it had some of my old magic yeah. props and things yes. that had been sitting in a basement yes. for a while. And in it was a little stack of business cards that I had printed up called Magic for Any Occasion. And it had my phone number and <laughs> I would you know, try and rent myself out to do birthday parties. And I did birthday parties and performed at a few church basements and things like that. But that was about the extent of my magical career. <laughs> well, you have, and it's an interesting start. You know, you do find, is that for me or not for me? And I think that's an interesting thing to notice when you're 12, 15, 16 years old. Well, I think what it taught me and, and was, was the discipline of learning how to do something because the only way to learn how to do a lot of the card tricks and things that I was doing was just by repetition. Yes. You do it 5,000 times yes. and you're probably going to be pretty good yes. by the time you get to the end of that, that journey. And it taught me that discipline. It taught me uh, a bit of showmanship. Yes. For sure. It yes. taught me about dealing with people. It, it teaches you a lot of skills, I think, yes. that you can then take on and use in other parts of your life. And you actually, and I was going to get to this a little bit later on in the uh, interview, but you've got a couple of organizations that you are involved in. Yes. Uh, so you have uh, two that I love, My Magic Hands, mm -hmm. which is uh, a, an outreach community for uh, at-risk youth. Mm -hmm. And is that part of the idea is to teach them something that's exactly. outside of your skill set, exactly. but, but will teach them a skill that would be very useful in life? Exactly. You, you nailed it completely. And that's what's exciting for me about the teaching program. My Magic Hands is part of Magic Hands Outreach, as you, as you mentioned. And what does that mean, working with at-risk youth? It, you know, it's, 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 we, we all have these sensitivities. And I was a very shy kid growing up. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, magic brought a lot of confidence to me by learning how to address exactly what you just pointed yeah. out, addressing the audience, addressing people, um, making business contacts and all of that. So... The program for My Magic Hand really born, was born out of this idea of working with youth that may not necessarily have access to these, to these whatever, arts, music, you know, any of this stuff, and it, because it maybe didn't resonate for them. Mm -hmm. so, or they had never seen it, or they didn't know about it. Precisely. Yeah. And it really transformed, and we're, we're active at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Center here in Toronto. And one of the things that I love, it's a passion of mine working with these kids because these kids sometimes face, um, I work with, with a, a lot of kids in the brain injury rehabilitation program. So magic is seen as a form of therapy, but I am not a therapist. Right. You know, like I put these air quotes around it. I'm a magician in their eyes. And so as soon as I come in, they feel it's like recreational. Right. It's not another doctor that's going to poke them with a needle or make ask them, them do something. Yeah, make them do Metrics, something. Metrics, right. exactly. Exactly. It's the repetition all of a sudden becomes fun. So it becomes a great opportunity for us to turn into making these kids um, not mini magicians, but like you said, greater outside of themselves. Yeah. So they have, I, I scare them right off the top. In six weeks, we're going to perform a big show together. <laughs> <laughs> they are little faces, but it's designed not to scare them, but to instill in them, okay, well, that feels scary because I don't know how to do it. Right. And then I said, immediately, within five weeks, we're going to learn how to make that happen. Right. So week by week, I build on, it's a gradual building block uh, approach. 
And we learn not only tricks, but we learn how to present, how to script, how to rehearse, how to practice. There's a big difference. And then they have to perform. And this skin in the game is essential for the success of the program. Because I, I watch them rehearse. I watch them, and I watch them for five weeks. I get yeah. to know these kids really well. Yeah. You put them in front of an audience, and Bloorview gets a huge audience. We've had up to 100, 125 people. Wow. These little kids, like they're six, seven, eight <laughs> years old. They're just, they're tiny. And they're put on like a big, large screen format, and they're broadcast like on, on these screens in the conference center. It's a beautiful facility. And they shine. They blossom. They're bigger than themselves. Their families are in tears because they can see potential of, of such joy in their child. Right. And they don't worry that they have this brain injury that they need to recover from. They're just worried about making that trick work and presenting it like a magician would. And I love that, that notion of their self-esteem just blossoms. You know, Their confidence blossoms, and that's the whole point. There are therapeutic benefits that, with the way we teach the program and how things have to, as you said, repetition's essential. And a lot of the kids have um, um, perhaps muscular issues, so we work on like the fine motor skills. Dexterity, of, learning, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's fun because I, I'll say to them, okay, um, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a righty. Let's do it with the left hand. They see me struggle with them right. so that we can be, we can learn it together. There's empathy inside of that. And they, and they work so hard for me. Like, you know, buttoning a T-shirt or, sorry, buttoning a dress-down shirt is part of their therapy. But, it, and they hate it. Yeah. <laughs> These kids, like, I don't, it hurts. Or yeah. stacking things, you know, to make things neat and tidy at home. Well, if I give them three cups and three little vaults, all of a sudden, <laughs> I can't stop them. Well, because there's an end result to it that seems cooler than just putting your toys away or buttoning up a shirt. That's exactly yeah. it. You know, I hear that all the time. Julie, I did it. Yeah. You know, and I love hearing that because the, the satisfaction inside of their voices, accomplishment and, and feeling good about it, and then getting this sort of magical result, that's like a bonus. <laughs> We're just talking about a lot of different uh, aspects of your life. There's also senior sorcery. So on the other end of the scale from teaching uh, young children, mm-hmm. you deal with, with older people as well. Yes. The show was born out of an, a different idea. Um, my colleague, David Ben, he used to work with a dear friend of his called Tom Kneebone. I never got a chance to meet Tom. I knew Tom Kneebone. I didn't get a chance mm-hmm. to meet this wonderful person yeah. who I've, I've heard so much about. Unbelievable so. cabaret performer and and bon yeah, and, yeah. and everything else. He uh, was best known probably in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. as, a, as a live performer for people who don't know. Uh, you see him on television as well and things, but live, uh, he was Off one the charts, of the most right? entertaining men I've ever seen on a stage. So his idea was to work on bringing um, musical theater, that uh, that exactly what you mm-hmm. described, that bottle, the the fun and joy of live performance. Yeah. But let's bring it bring it to seniors because seniors can't always come to these shows anymore for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea of Groundhog Day, you know, happening. It's 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 just a bit repetitious for them in their everyday centers right. and, and community centers even. You know, this is the day we do bingo. This is the day we do shopping. Yeah. This is the day we go see the doctor. You know, it just it's a very routine life. So Senior Sorcery came around with this idea. Let's bring live magic to the, the theater, uh, to the seniors' places, senior residences, senior homes, long-term care. But... Um, the idea of breaking down the fourth wall inside of the way I present magic was interesting. And a lot of centers were a little concerned because, you know, well, you know, these are kind of, you know, seniors who aren't used to engaging anymore. And that, you know, it might be a bit 
on setback. And it was a little intimidating at first. Um, I'm used to live performances. You come in, and we were talking about birthday party shows, so you can imagine the energy I'm used <laughs> and to. And they're wild, yeah. <laughs> they're wild, yeah. but that's expected. So when you go into a senior's home and theater setting, it's almost it's almost silent at first because this idea of wheeling people down because most of them are in wheelchairs, setting them up slowly, parking the walkers. You know, there's this, there's this procedure that's yeah. very s- slow and quiet and, and practiced. But I, th- some of the best compliments I've received is when the seniors respond to the show mm-hmm. because the idea of breaking a fourth wall in, in let's say, programming, it's not the go-to um, suggestion that a lot of programmers at the senior centers would go for. No, music is good, they can listen. Art is good because they can watch or, or participate introvertedly, right. individually. Um, that kind of idea. So magic was a bit, hmm, you know, how are we going to do this and get them to engage? And I don't ask for a lot of cards to be picked, though. You know, I'm not looking for a lot of right. that kind of interaction. But I do want to provide this idea of visual magic, something they can participate in, but how do I say in a non-threatening way? You know, yeah. there's no pressure on the audience participation. And when senior centers saw that, and they saw how the seniors in- engaged and then responded, either by their really bright smiles or or their effort to show me their their appreciation, it was so heartwarming. It's very very moving to see. And then they come up to you afterwards. They want to tell you about who they'd seen in the past, yeah. their experiences in theater, and. Uh, you know, I'd stay an hour after listening to these wonderful stories. It was very, very moving to me. What was it like having a magician for a father? <laughs> Were you the coolest kid in school? Because I'm sure that he must have played birthday parties for friends of yours or yes. something. It must, have, it must have been something around Victoria that people talked about. Well, Victoria is a small town. Mm-hmm. When, when I was growing up, you know, we everybody knew everyone. Yeah. It was just how it was. And my dad was well-known. He he did make his rounds with, be it birthday parties, banquets, shopping mall openings. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. he was everywhere. Just the stuff that, that, that do, the, the the things that add up to a living yes. for a performer. Yes, yeah. and you and that's another point, is that he had to, to do all these different angles. And as a result, when I'm growing up, you know, I'm going to an elementary school kind of in the suburbs, and everything's great, and we're moving along. But... You know, people would always want to, so we'll, we'll go to your house and do our homework. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll see if dad's home. You know? <laughs> or there's this one very funny story that reminds me, uh, you just reminded me of. We had a large driveway, and, and there was this awful chunk of dirt. My dad was always trying to garden, you know, to make something <laughs> grow. Right. So he got, he hired out a, a rototiller. You know those monstrosities yeah, yeah. that that you know jumping jacks yeah, all the way down our the grass, yeah, yeah, but it's it's a it's a huge monstrous thing, and it was very ugly and very aggressive looking. So I I made myself scarce. Yeah. But he's so he's you know it's summertime. He's wearing his shorts, and I think he probably even took off his shirt, and he's trying to 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 roll it till this machine down our driveway. So at the end of the driveway, there's a mom with two little kids. And you can, my father was coming back. He was killing himself laughing. And he tells me the story. He goes, the mom was saying, you see, Mr. Ink does not live in a bottle. He has a house. There's a driveway. You know, he's covered in dirt, right? And I'm like, okay, this is my dad. That's great. He doesn't live in a bottle. I love that. <laughs> it was kind of fun. That's, that's, that's the quintessential experience of my dad. In this new exhibit at the Art Gallery of Ontario, you talk about him a great deal in the the video that that plays. And so this this presentation is these beautiful 
posters that range from 100 or more years ago. Mm-hmm. There's dozens of them. And then there are other things that you can have a look at, one of which is this video. And you tell a story in the video about a hat that your father wore yes. that needed to be Extreme. changed. Yes. Yeah, tell us that story if you could. It's, it was about this idea of, you know, cultural appropriation. And as a Chinese Canadian, my father was accused of inappropriate cultural representation in his costume. <laughs> and how, but because he was wearing a hat that sort of looked like a dome. Yeah. At, at one no, point. the other way around. Uh. Uh, in the magic posters that you see, Chung Ling Su, who was a true appropriator of culture. Yeah, he was a, a, an a white man, yeah, yeah. A white American man <laughs> yeah. who, who took up the act of, of uh, a Chinese magician. And, and presented himself as an Asian person. Yes, as a Chinese magician on stage and off. Mm. You know, he really perpetuated this idea. So what did he do? He took the costuming of the, the, the Qing Dynasty military hat. It's a very commanding hat, and it's, it actually turns up, and it's, it's famous because of this, this peak that it has. It, it is designed to elevate your stature. It's right. a military design, and you, it is a very nice, aesthetic-looking hat. But that was representation of a military you know, might, and it was a time where... The everyman was movement was rising up, and the military was brutal and cruel, and it was an us and them very much. So, you know, fast forward to the 1970s. I think it was must have been in the late 70s. I, I have a memory of it, and we were abroad, uh, not abroad, in Vancouver, and my dad was doing a show, and we were always doing festival shows, and he was famous for wearing this sort of black Chinese robe that was very decorative, you know, dragons and, and very uh, elaborate with the embroidering, very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this hat, this hat caps the look. And if you do any sort of uh, Google search of, of Chung Ling Su, you'll see these gorgeous robes and hats. So my father was inspired by this yeah. idea, you know, it looked great, you know, this is how magicians looked and it was a very regal looking yeah, thing. Yeah. So he wanted to identify with the the... Glamour, I suppose, but also there's elegance, there's stature. Majesty, yeah, yeah. And it had the regalia to go with it. So he presented this really wonderful show, and he was inspired by this this presence that um, these grand magicians had. So we're performing at the show, we're packing up, we're putting things away, and he's asked by the organizers of the Chinese Cultural Association, and they were really upset. The The Cultural Association felt that it was in bad form that here was a Chinese man representing the, the wrong side, as right. it were, the military might. You were glorifying this idea of being in, a, in this costume. And they thought, you know, it, and it wasn't the robe. It wasn't the costume itself. It was this hat because there was a big distinction with how your military ranking was mm-hmm. assigned. So they said... You know, it would be better, Tony, if you would wear the skull cap. That's the domed one, because that represents the everyman. It's humble. You're with the people. You know, this is how we see it. And right. you know, my father didn't take issue with the change of hats. It was the way in which it was brought to him. You know, it's like I am not making a political statement. I'm, yeah. I'm not looking to to identify with you know the wrong side, yeah. as it were. And he was really confused by the accusation and mm-hmm. quite profoundly, now when I reflect on it, it, it changed his, his whole approach. He was, he was highly sensitive and almost, almost going back to Western wear instead of, you know, like, really? have I messed that up? Like, yeah. it was jarring for a while. 
he didn't put the show away or anything like that, but it, it, it moved him. And I remember it upset him, like, deeply. We had to take this ferry back, and he was really mulling this, this whole event. I was a kid, you know, so yeah. it kind of freaked me out already. You know, everything was very, you know, I've never seen that happen before. <laughs> and I, I remember we were, we were packing up these silk handkerchiefs, we're folding them, and I'm, I remember looking off to the side going, that's not a, that was a, such a tense moment. Cultural appropriation is something that, as a kid, I don't think I, I recognized what I was seeing. Yeah. But I used to buy, as I said earlier, I used to do magic, and I have a collection of magic books, and uh, you go through them, and there's all these great, what I thought at the time were Asian performers, uh, it, it, particularly sort of around the turn of the last century, mm-hmm. uh, most of whom turned out not to be Asian. <laughs> uh, but why do you think that uh, that became such a popular style? And how do how do we regard it today? What do we look back and think about it today? These are great, great questions because this is exactly what the Art Gallery of Ontario is mm-hmm. addressing inside of this exhibition. The, the exhibition focuses around the 1880s to about 1930, the golden age mm-hmm. of magic. And this is a time, you have to put it into context. We weren't zipping around the world in, in airplanes. We didn't have streaming devices that told us, you know, what's happening in China, what's happening in Japan, what's going on in Fiji. You know, we don't know. And so it became the unknown. And there's this idea of these frontiers that were being uh, met. So there are a lot of things happened at once. You know, you do have barriers breaking down and, and the Eastern performers were coming to the West. That's how a lot of these Western performers saw this very different style of magic. Very, very different. The showmanship was much different. Yes. I think uh, often they didn't speak. Yes. Uh, the, the Asian performers, it was more about flourishes and, and beautiful. There was a lot of beauty in, in art in and the way they presented things. elaborate, grandiose, mm-hmm. and... Um, and I mean, like, so imagine those uh, turn-of-the-century Chinese costumes. They're very robe-like. They're very wizard-like. Yeah, yeah. And they allow for a lot of movements <laughs> and maybe magical advantages, if you get my drift. <laughs> so I think that there were some advantages to be taken from, right. from adapting these styles. So a couple of things happen. One, there's huge interest. You know, it's something new and exotic. I think the idea of the East be, just became a fascination with, with culture, mm-hmm. with everybody. With There's a whole movement of this, this idea of appropriating, you know, uh, um, uh, paravans, you know, with the Oriental yeah. carvings. I don't know what it necessarily means right. or says or what was used for, but it was, it was different. And um, it was access to something new. So it was refreshing. There's also this idea of it's a bit mercenary, you know, you want a variety show. So if you have a variety act, like someone who's uh, maybe from, from Asia and a Chinese performer putting in, you know, why would you want to pay the guy to do that when you can impersonate the guy and do it yourself, keep right. the money in the family? You know, right. so there is this mercenary approach too. But the, I think there is this true fascination with presenting something that hasn't been seen before. You know, this is what magic was. It was a very cutting edge, golden age of magic. It was... This is, we're not competing with theater. We're not competing with film. We're not even competing really with radio. It was about live entertainment. So what are you going to do for us now? You know, what's new? So they'd have to constantly come up with new material as well. So you see how the social context reflects in the magic shows a lot of this this, uh, reflection of the time and the culture. And I think the idea that, you know, like you've just painted this beautiful portrait of grandness, elaborate, Mm. um, 
somehow Chinese magic is tied to water. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> it's just this idea of fountains and goldfish. And <laughs> I mean, it's, right? It's crazy. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, fountains of water would be bursting from, from some of these performers. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. And yet it's beautiful and different. And the idea that it was so elaborate you know, that's part of it, too. And this is what the golden age needed. Right. What are we going to do to dress the stage? How is it going to look more interesting? So I, there's, a, there's many, many reasons for, for its interest. And I think the idea that magicians could be a different character, mm. I think that really helped them. Billy Robinson, who was Chung Ling Su, this American, who was a brilliant thinker. He was um, a, a creator, an inventor, a builder. You know, he was very successful. But he skyrockets to stardom as soon as he becomes somebody else, Chung Ling Su. And it took a – he's the famous magician who died from a bullet catch. That's right. Yeah, yeah 1918. And he's, he's standing well, a, a there. A trick he had done hundreds of times. Probably. Hundreds of – which he developed. He mm -hmm. invented his, his own method for doing this. And it's a very – you know, it, I think they, they had this idea, you know, uh, um, condemned by the boxers, That's you know, right? right? Yeah. This idea of this Chinese man's going to go in front. He's going to defy – the the guns yeah. the death and it and this is part of it too death defying you know there's a mystique in the unknown and mm -hmm. how can you know how to conjure and protect yourself from from bullets you know like this idea of playing with imagination was powerful and not to say all audiences were gullible but they needed entertainment they mm -hmm. needed storytelling they needed to be you know a, div a diversion and here's a live guy who's going to do this for you and there's a real gun and there's a real gunshot it's it's very very powerful as he used you can to imagine. shoot through a, a a plate right he would hold the plate and the plate would shatter and then he would show look the bullet i caught the bullet in my mouth there's a there's another method where he would hold the plate in front of him almost like a shield and the uh, um, it's a rifle that's raised yeah. to his chest and uh it's shot and the the idea that he could catch the bullet and 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 spit the bullet onto the plate right. so you could hear this clatter. Yeah. It was a very dramatic moment. This is in a huge theater. Yeah. You know, people are like whispering to hear this clatter. <laughs> so it's it's powerful. But he he dies from his own from his own prop um, by misadventure, and um, that's when they discovered he was an American. <laughs> What we haven't talked about yet is women in magic. And just before the break, I was talking about that and saying that there aren't, I mean, there are more now, I for guess. For sure, for sure. Uh, but Adelaide Herman was a trailblazer yes. in that way. And so tell me the story of her, because I, I think this is quite fascinating. She's got a great story, and she is a hero. You know, she, first of all, so how did she get started in magic? So she's in a variety arts show. She's she falls in love with a magician named Alexander Herman, who was at the time one of the guys. Like it, it, he starts for, the golden age in many ways. Yeah, Herman Thurston was another one yeah. uh, who were all sort of in and around the same time. I yeah. think as Houdini, but these were almost household names. These and that's a really good point. You know, you have to put into context their fame. So the Alexander Herman, he had a, a older brother, Carl Herman, and they were many years apart. I think there were like 13 kids in their family. <laughs> so he's the, uh, Alexander's the youngest and, and Carl's the eldest. And so Carl and, and Alexander split the world. They literally carve up the world. <laughs> you take Europe and, and Asia and I'll take North America and South America. So Alexander Herman, do they dominate the world. Yeah. Like they are so famous. And they're the famous magicians, if you look them up, 
they're with the with the mustache and the goatee, almost you know, with that diabolical yeah, kind sort of, of like, feeling, almost like a devil, yeah. almost yeah. like a devil, yeah. and they and that becomes the quintessential sort of magic view. So Adelaide is working a variety show in vaudeville, and and uh, I believe they meet in Europe. And uh, Alexander is um, French born, and even though he's he's uh, you know he's just a, a, a fantastic magician and he's following in his brother's footsteps mm-hmm. so he's he's chasing his brother around the world too he's, he's a kid they meet and she leaves her variety show and she's but well, as we were talking about earlier she fills in certain spots in the big show right. singing dancing she she was like a trick artist on a on a crazy bicycle contraption yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's nuts so what's interesting is that as a couple now as partners uh, Alexander starts imparting secrets to his wife, and they. She's written this beautiful biography. Our friend Margaret Steele has has rescued it and published it. It's fantastic because it's her words. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's embellished, but right. you get a sense of it. She um, Adelaide starts learning magic through Alexander, and he's teaching her like the inside stuff. And it's it's a time where women weren't out on front of the stage. They weren't addressing audiences. It was inappropriate for women to be mm-hmm. doing this. Um, or you were seen with a, a downlight, you yeah. know, lowbrow style. So Alexander uh, tailors a costume for Adelaide to to be very masculine. So it's Mr. Alexander. So she's out there and she's working. You know, she's learning yeah. hands-on in live shows. Right. And there's this famous story where she says she goes to collect the handkerchiefs. She's going to pass them on as Mr. Alexander to yeah. to Alexander Herman. And he goes, and and Herman says, and now Mr. Alexander will show you you know, the, this wonderful, marvelous effect. She panics. She runs off stage. Apparently. <laughs> but he ca- he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, Herman's great. He pulls her back and he, he gets her to do it. And more and more. And soon they, sh- they shed the, the masculinity um, veil. She becomes a very well known as his partner in this. But Alexander Herman, this famous magician, I believe in, 19, in 1897, 1896, heart attack. Mm-hmm. They're on tour. They're in America. She's left with boxcar after boxcar in the rails. She's got of con- props, and uh, things, props yeah. uh, a company. Yeah. She's responsible for all these animals and these people. And it's this huge tour and he dies, you know? And so she's, 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 she's devastated. And she herself is a very strong performer. She's been organizing all of this for many moons now. And she doesn't know what to do. So she is, okay, I need an Alexander at the helm. She gets her, she summons um, Alexander's uh, nephew to come, Leon. He looks like him. (laughs) He looks just like him. But he's nowhere near the stature of this magician. So she coaches him for three years, for three seasons. She coaches him. She teaches him. She gives him the show, basically. He thinks he's so good, he fires his aunt. (laughs) I don't need her anymore. (laughs) And so she's out on the road again. So this time she says, okay, I can't, you know, not to say that men can't be trusted, but yeah. if you're going to get something done, she's going to do it herself. She gets up there for three decades. She dominates the stage as the queen of magic. Leon, you know, sad to say, he kind of, the you know, nephew. fades. Yeah. He, the nephew just fades into vaudeville, you know, very, very quiet. She's one of the first women to do the bullet catch. She's one of the first women to be doing large illusions. She's one of the first women to be seen as a as a as a front runner, as a headliner. But she's competing, as you pointed out earlier on, with these massive names in magic. So when Herman dies, even though she really works hard and she does successfully attain huge fame, her her starlight starts to fade because 
magic is passed on into like this male mm-hmm. male network, and it went from Herman. All of a sudden, Keller becomes um, the big name. Yep. Keller literally passes the mantle onto Thurston because he buys the show. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> which you saw in the yeah, exhibition. The, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you see, there's a poster literally where they are handing the cape, the magic cape, from one yes. magician to another. It's great. <laughs> it's like the epitome of marketing. You, mm-hmm. you know, that's the thing with these posters. They were made for advertising. Right. They were ephemeral. They weren't made to last a hundred years. Well, that's the thing. And when you see the posters at the at the AGO, they are uh, beautiful looking, uh, but they are also very rare because, as you say, they, were no, they weren't meant to last. But the the beauty of them so often is in the little details. Yes. The little devils that are poking around <laughs> yes. the corner or the expression on the black cat's face yes. in the corner. They're yes. just, you could spend hours looking yes. at them. Yes, yes. And that's what's fun. You know, even if you go to the AGO website and you see some of these brilliant posters, you will see actually another beautiful poster that opens the exhibition. It's on the website as yeah. well. And it's uh, Leroy, Talma, and Bosco. And there is um, Mercedes Talma featured, yeah. you know, right in the center. And she gets equal billing with, with these other two magicians. She's married to Leroy, but mm-hmm. but it's a game, this idea of sharing the stage. She was a very gifted sleight-of-hand artist, and she was a coin manipulator. So she, she had this deft skill in her in her ability. And it's the same thing, though. You know, it's the somehow the male names are championed. Well, how did the suffragette movement then influence women in magic? I think in many ways it, it was at that time, right? So we look at how much more, not power, but voices that mm-hmm. women had. And yet it's still, it's this dichotomy. It's like, you know, but the women's place is in the home. Right. So it's like, well, she can't be on stage. She can't have a career. Never, You know, so yeah. being on stage was kind of like... You know, what kind of vocation are you actually in? And it, it raised eyebrows. It, it gave a certain inference of what this character was of for this woman. Like and, her moral character. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where Adelaide Herman did break down a lot of those barriers because she was an elegant dress. She was um, a known name. She was doing, she was running a company, you know. So she, she was the producer and she was the f- the face of the organization in many ways. So there was... Uh, uh, very rare instances, and along the way, there are some wonderful women in this in this field. And I I have now come to realize that it's much like it is today. You know, there are a lot of women in magic. There are a lot of actually young women who've uh, approached Penn and Teller and been featured on the show. And I love that. I love that this is becoming more of a movement forward for for young women to be exploring this art in the way they want to. Mm-hmm. You know, not not defined inside of a little box and oh you can't do it that way or you have to do it this way you know well why you know we're still kind of fighting these questions in many ways and and I think how are women portrayed is an important question that we should be asking and this is what this is what this new movement has really seen you know it's 2020 and I I still feel some young women smash against a a glass Mm -hmm. ceiling or somehow get these these doors slammed in their faces and I wasn't I wasn't ever blocked that way. You know, I had this really wonderful inside track, thanks to the influence of my father, then thanks to that network, thanks to that work. And, and these, I have a lot of male friends in the magic world. I, I'm, I'm searching. I have very few female friends in the magic world. And all these male um, supporters, young and old, 
are extremely supportive to me, very supportive, very welcoming, very inviting. And I'm, I'm, I know I'm lucky for that. I know that's not always the case for women. We need to change that. And that is part of the work. You just got a couple of minutes left, but that I think is probably part of the work that Magicana does. Exactly. It's broadening the definition of magic, not, not perhaps to this limited form of whatever people think mm-hmm. it might be. It can be many, many things. And I think it's time to lo- start looking at its history a little bit more. Let's broaden the, the idea of what is magic. Why is it appropriate for, for people, not just boys, not just yeah. girls, not just men, not just women? And the skills that you learn as we started this conversation with, the skills that you learn are things that are easily adaptable uh, to life outside of of the stage or exactly. trying to amaze your friends with a card trick. Exactly. And thanks to my father's very strong influence in my early days of setting me up with a magic show, he didn't set me up to be a magician. He's taught me life skills. Mm-hmm. He taught me how to how to conduct myself on the telephone, how to book a gig professionally, how to then follow up. He then showed me how to advertise, to market, to sell. You know, these are life skills of mine, and and I, I'm grateful for that. I I really came to understand that that's the thing that he gave me is this gift of of real self sufficiency, independence, and because I grew up in a very loving family, I'm I can finally step outside of his shadow and be myself. And also the ability to say, yeah, I think I can do magic for a career, which a lot of people may not. It, it, it is, it's a leap. Yeah, it's, it, a it's, leap. it's a risky one, but if I'm honest, it's really fun. <laughs> Absolutely, and you look like you have so much fun doing it. My guest in studio has been Julie Ang. She is the executive director of Magicana, a Toronto-based organization dedicated to the exploration and advancement of magic, uh, also uh, a performer. You have a website. People, if they want to book you for like a corporate gig or sure. something like that, they can do that, and your website is? Magician.com. That's right. So, yeah, and, and e- easily found via Google and, uh, and, and worth the time and effort it takes to do it. Julie, thanks so much. Thank you, Richard. This has been a blast. My thanks to Robert Turner on the board. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening, and we'll talk again next week.